Lord Jesus, in your mercy and boundless grace, cleanse us from our sin. Fill our lives to overflowing with your endless joy. Grant us wisdom from your store that we might serve you better and more. And may we praise you all our days whose steadfast love endures forever. Whose steadfast love endures forever. Amen. About 20 years ago, uh, countless Christians in North America would slip a small band on their wrist to remind them to tailor their activities to suit God's desires. The bracelets sported four letters, W-W-J-D. What would Jesus do? It's not a bad question for Christians to ask uh, before, uh, uh, before leaping into action. The idea that uh, God is present and partnering in our day-to-day decision-making tends to result in more ethically positive behaviors. Which is why I always found it a bit ironic that WWJD bracelets top the lists of items most commonly stolen from Christian bookstores. <laughs> Be that as it may, the question for us today is not so much what would Jesus do what Jesus would do in our lives, but what would Jesus undo? What habits or accommodations have we incorporated into our lives that inhibit a fuller experience of God's grace in the world. While no one I've met is properly attentive to God in full measure at all times, the things that prevent us from deeper communion have some common features. And today, we're going to notice the human pattern of indifference, our ability to be blasé, about things that truly matter. In particular, we're going to highlight our tendency towards self-sufficiency and the endless allure of distractions that keep us preoccupied with things of lesser importance. The text was just read for us from the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, a book that many Christians largely ignore while others seem fairly obsessed with. It's hard to be neutral about a book that is rife with vivid imagery and drama depicting the end of the world as we know it. But today, we're interested in theological insight, not historical foresight. And it's helpful to know that this book was written with an immediate practical purpose, written for particular Christian communities in very troubled times. And the opening verses state that Revelation was written to show believers what must soon take place. To reveal, to be a revelation of the divinity, the testimony, and ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. Revelation is about the presence of Jesus with believers in difficult circumstances 
and it is intended to comfort and guide. Marva Dawn sums it up this way. God's message to us in the book of Revelation is that in the present, we're not always going to win. Our lives will not always be characterized by triumph. It is balanced on the other side, on the opposite side, by this hope. Eventually, we will win because Christ reigns. In the meantime, however, we live in a deeply compromised world, and as often as not, we are part of the movement that distances the world God entrusted to us from the worldliness that we so readily gravitate towards. The early chapters of John's revelation of Jesus include letters to seven churches in Western Asia Minor. These were not the only churches in the area, but each was a city that served as something of a regional hub, and together they formed a rough circle in the order in which they are listed in the, in the Bible, and it's the route that the postal system of the day would have followed. And so these letters would have been distributed and spread quite rapidly throughout the Christian communities. We don't have time today to describe the different characteristics of each of the cities and the churches within them. It is a fascinating study. It is helpful to note that all of the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 follow a similar pattern. Each begins with a salutation, a unique description of Christ. The pattern then is for the the letter to commend the church for something that it's doing well. And this is followed by a rebuke for problematic behaviors. Then there is a challenge to each particular church. And each letter concludes with a promise that God would love to fulfill for them. Two of the churches received no rebuke. They've held up well and done well under very difficult and trying circumstances. And two of the seven churches received no commendation, no praise. And Laodicea, which is the seventh church, the final one to receive its letter, gets quite a rebuke, as you just heard, and no praise given at all. And that's where we're going to be focusing our thoughts today. What would Jesus undo? Apparently, Jesus dislikes spiritual indifference. And so we can look to the Laodiceans for some insight on what not to do. Laodicea was an important city in the first century. Located not far from Ephesus... It became, famous, or it became wealthy on caravan traffic and famous for its spas. There are thermal springs in the area. Their therapeutic waters flow through limestone beds, and as the water reaches the earth's surface and cools, the minerals crystallize, 
creating bright white deposits amidst pools which cascade into lower pools to create an unusual series of basins and stalagmites. It's quite a sight. A large service industry catering to the Greeks and Romans grew up around the hot springs. Entrepreneurs imported special foodstuffs, wines, and other luxury items. This was an upscale vacation center. And more, there was a well-known medical school in Laodicea that used the thermal springs for many treatments. Its most famous product was a powder prescribed for the cure of conjunctivitis, a salve for pink eye. Laodicea also had a vibrant textile industry, famous for their robes and fine clothing. It had a coin-making mint. It was a banking center. The city was booming. It was a pretty okay place to be at that time. So what does John want to reveal to the believers in the church at Laodicea? His description of Christ in the salutation is telling. Jesus is presented as the amen, the seal, the final word, that which is valid and binding. Jesus is the faithful and true witness, the dependable one. And so the entire title presents the trustworthiness of Christ. In contradistinction, of course, to the church at Laodicea. Now, the pattern of the letters calls for a word of commendation at this point. But for Laodicea, there is no praise. The letter runs straight to rebuke. In verse 15, it says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Not the words you actually want to hear. You are neither hot nor cold. The city of Laodicea's major weakness was the lack of a decent water supply. While the water from the spas ran over a spectacular waterfall and was lovely to look at, it was full of minerals, no good for drinking. The water that they used for daily living came through pipes from a source about six miles away, and by the time it arrived in the city, it was not refreshing, but tepid, not at all what a thirsty soul craves. It did not satisfy. It was tempting to simply spit it out. You are neither hot nor cold. The apparent indifference of believers in Laodicea is a key reason why they get rebuked so severely. They are lukewarm. They are not much interested in learning more about their faith or how they could be more active worshipers. A high level of apathy seems to have set in. They're idling in a comfort zone, unengaged. 
They may be going through the motions of worship, but it's clear they're not expecting much of anything to change, least of all themselves. The believers are living without passion, drifting through life without a compelling sense of purpose or deep belief, unattuned to what the Spirit is saying to their congregation. They waffle along for the company and security that a church might provide without truly tapping into the vitality at its core or cottoning on to its demands. Spiritual indifference is a manifestation of the sin of sloth, one of the seven deadly sins in later church teaching. And sloth is not just about being idle or lazy. Sometimes it shows up in feverish activity, a distracting busyness that attempts to disguise a sluggishness of the soul. It sometimes shows up as an inchoate sorrow that stealthily stifles one's sensitivities, weighing you down so you just don't feel like doing anything. It's an inner inertia, a listlessness that lets you drift along in an insulated bubble of whatever. All these are manifestations of what the early church fathers called acedia, or the noonday demon. In, in essence, it is a spiritual condition that's been well described as an emptiness that encourages flight from spiritual discipline or purposeful life-giving activity through indifference or distractions. Indifference or distractions. The Laodiceans had plenty to distract them from the demanding work of keeping one's soul attentive to God. Remember, they were for the most part wealthy. They prided themselves on their fine linens and nice clothes. They worked to grow their bank accounts and to develop the industries that kept them all comfortable. They were productively occupied and economically thriving, doing just fine. Thank you very much. God, for the most part, was an add-on. Someone to attend to now and again for the sake of appearances or whatever. But self-sufficiency was the ethos of the place. I've got it under control. I'm doing all right. Everything is fine. But the Spirit speaking through John's letter to the church at Laodicea saw it differently. Verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Naked, poor, wretched, blind, pitiable, I don't think these words appeared on the job resumes these people would write for themselves. I certainly wouldn't want them on mind. It's like the Spirit is saying to them, you're just like your water, unsatisfying, 
You're fixated on the things of this world to the detriment of your own spiritual well-being. You're starving your soul to feed your ego. I remember a cartoon uh, that years ago struck me forcefully. It was a caricature of a wealthy banker looking into a full-length mirror and seeing in the mirror his reflection as a naked, skeletal, starving man. Materially rich, yet spiritually impoverished. Or a magnificent old log I once saw lying on the forest floor that when I went to sit on it, it collapsed. Lustrous and strong-looking on the outside, rotten from within, unable to carry the weight. I can't imagine it was much fun for the Laodicean believers to hear or heed this letter. Because the Spirit next unleashes something of a rant on these lukewarm Christians, a collage of criticisms that are painfully pertinent to countless other congregations as well. Those fancy clothes the Laodiceans were so fond of wearing, or that cool new car, or nice home, or attachment of any sort, those robes are simply rags in the larger scheme of things. The Spirit is saying to them that your priorities are misordered. The comfort of your body is more important to you than the state of your soul. Furthermore, you are blind to your plight. You're so self-satisfied that you don't even know what you're missing. Your passions are misguided. You're asleep in your spirit, wretched. And you don't even realize it. And after the scolding comes a challenge. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This challenge The ball is in your court. (laughs) Pay some attention to the state of your soul. Set your material pursuits aside and focus on matters of internal integrity and eternal value. Remember that your fellow believers in neighboring cities are suffering. And what have you done to help them? You're too focused on your own little world. Wake up, look around, recognize your nakedness and cover it with robes of righteousness, not high fashion. Let your faith inform your deeds and generate good behavior. Love God. Love your neighbor. Those things matter more than your current prosperity. You need to repent. Turn it around. Get the blinders off your eyes. Rub some of that famous solve into the eye of your soul. What would Jesus undo? Jesus would undo the blindness that prevents us from seeing and acknowledging our dependence on God. 
We are not self-sufficient. Wealth will neither protect us from every calamity nor still the worries and anxieties that are so much a part of life in this world. We need each other and we need God. We cannot go it alone. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What would Jesus undo? Jesus wants to undo the indifference that besets our souls and inhibits our purest passions. Jesus wants us to be alive to life with God, an abundant life, albeit not necessarily an easy or comfortable life. The promise given to the church at Laodicea is that God will be there for them whenever they get around to checking in. That there is a place saved for them in God's presence. I will give a place with me on my throne. Verse 21. But the action needs to come from the believers. The Spirit has spoken. It's been uncomfortable. The Spirit tells them, tells us perhaps, to be earnest and repent. Listen, verse 20, I am standing at the door and knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. That's quite the image, isn't it? Jesus knocking at the door of the human heart and waiting to be granted entrance to be welcomed within, to commune together, to enjoy our hospitality, to be at home with us. The heart is the seat of the passions, revealing what we truly desire, what we deeply, most deeply want. It's our hearts that govern most our actions, not our heads. We will pursue what matters most to us. If it's wealth we worship, God gets squeezed out. If it's a sense of our own self-sufficiency, this notion that we can control our own affairs, then we inhibit God's ability to delight us. Some things are within our control, namely our willingness to submit our egos to the startling demands of Christian living, which call on us to love and serve God and others as we learn to love ourselves. We alone control access to our heart. God will not force a way in. Draw near to me, God says, and I will draw near to you. Open the eyes of your heart. See the abundance and goodness that flows when we follow God with all our heart, soul, and mind. North America is a pretty good place to live. Wealthy, Self-sufficient. Most of us enjoy a standard of living that the upper classes of ancient Rome would envy. We also benefit from tremendous freedom. We're free to choose our guiding belief system to worship as we please. Personal autonomy is one of the gods of our society. We love to think that we're in control. In other words, we're a lot like 
the Laodicea of old. We are subject to the same temptations, distractions, and indifferences. Indifference are a big part of the environment we inhabit, which puts us at tremendous risk for spiritual immaturity. Are we willing to recognize this reality in our situation, to name the sin that so easily besets us and repent? Are we willing to allow the spirit of the living God to breathe renewal into the recesses of our hearts, to build in us a desire to love the Lord our God with all our being? Can our passion for Christ be refreshed, revitalized, rechanneled? Can our worship be sincere, life-transforming? Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Are we listening to what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Let's pray. O oh God, don't let our love grow cold. Light the fire again. We are here to buy gold refined in the fire. Naked and poor, wretched and blind we come. Clothe us in white so we won't be ashamed. Lord, light the fire again. Amen.